Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest CER podcast. I'm John Springford, uh, Director of Research for the CER. We've just had a very interesting event with uh, Matt Goodwin of the University of Kent and Chatham House and Paul Whiteley from the University of Essex um, discussing their new book, Brexit, Why Britain Voted to Leave the EU. And uh, in response, we have Florence Fauché from uh, Sciences Po, uh, a political scientist who's done a lot of work on, on France. We're going to have a discussion about Brexit and why Britain voted to leave the EU and potentially what the implications might be um, for the EU as a whole. Matthew, I'd like to ask you the first question really, which is, there are, there are three stories about uh, why Britain voted to leave the EU. There's the immigration story that we've had a much faster net migration from the EU since 2004. There's the sovereignty story, which is that people wanted to take back control over, over laws and the way that we were governed. Um, and then there's the uh, economy story, which is that people didn't really believe Project Fear. And I wondered um, what the findings of your book meant for those, those three narratives and which one won out in the end. Well, one of the things that we uh, have tried to do is, is bring uh, data and evidence to that debate, you know, not, not, not opinion, um, and we're drawing on more than 10 years worth of survey data, uh, an overall sort of sample of you know, tens of thousands of voters. Um, and we've also got a nice panel design in there, so we have a survey just a few days before the uh, vote on June the 23rd, and then another a few days after. So, you know, in terms of what the book contains is a sort of war chest of data and um, the story really is you know that there's a bit of all of that in there in, in, but, but of, of all the factors immigration I, was really key the first thing to say is that public attitudes towards EU membership have been very volatile over the last 10 years and so the argument is that this really could have could have gone you know either way uh, to a certain point but by the time of the referendum you had what we sort of refer to as a, as a kind of complex sort of mix of calculations, concerns over community uh, and cues from political leaders. So you know, people were very anxious over immigration. That was affecting how they were seeing the costs and benefits of uh, leaving the EU. Uh, they, they felt very uh, concerned about how that had been uh, changing the country and how it had been managed. But they were also particularly receptive to some of the messages being put out by the kind of prominent leaders, Boris Johnson and, and Nigel Farage. And you know, what's interesting is that while immigration was affecting how people were seeing the, the costs and benefits and was making them more likely to vote to leave and was also making them more likely to turn out, What's interesting is that in the back room of people's minds, if someone had felt that the economy wasn't working out for them or they felt that they were sort of left behind, they were also more likely to dampen the, the perceived risks of Brexit. Um, so it wasn't sort of playing out on the day of the vote, if you like, but it was certainly um, affecting how people were weighing up the costs and benefits of all of this. I mean, I, I, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and I, I want to turn to Paul Whiteley, because there's an obvious question which flows from that analysis, which is, how does it affect how Theresa May and the EU27 should approach the negotiations? I mean, Theresa May has said that we are um, going to leave the single market. And she said it, you know, because we need to have control over immigration and we need to essentially stop EU law from being enforced in the UK. And that seems to accord with your book's analysis. 
But is there, is there a risk that if the economy does poorly, that voters will start to change their minds, that Theresa May will feel under more pressure to pursue a softer form of Brexit, do you think? That's an interesting point. I don't think there's much evidence up to this point that people regretting the decision that they made. The EU referendum itself has changed history. It's changed the way people look at it. So it's always very difficult to figure out what would have happened if this hadn't taken place and so on. And it's made, I think, Brexit a little bit more entrenched in people's minds. And the issues that came up in the referendum and indeed are discussed in the book, immigration and uh, feeling left behind and so on, all those issues are still there. And so it's not clear that they're going to change their mind immediately. If there was a downturn in the economy in Britain and indeed in the EU, I think it would probably make them more likely to think Brexit was a good idea. Because when people are under pressure economically or in terms of immigration, they tend to pull in, they tend to be, become a bit more authoritarian. There's quite a good literature on this. And that happened, I think, in the case of the EU and in part explains this volatility. On the other hand, if the growth that we're seeing now um, with Europe emerging fully from the Great Recession and indeed Britain doing reasonably well, sustains itself and gets better over the next few years, paradoxically people will be more likely to say, well, maybe we should have stayed in Europe and we'd like to work with the Europeans. So generosity producers remain, threat producers Brexit is really what I'm saying. That's absolutely fascinating. Florence, if I could just turn, turn to you. I mean, you know, this, this question of the three narratives of immigration, sovereignty and the economy, um, we're talking just a few days after Emmanuel Macron won the presidency. And to what extent do you think that those three issues played out in the uh, eventual result? Because we really shouldn't forget that uh, Marine Le Pen uh, ended up with you know an absolutely huge proportion of the votes um, and, and far more than anyone would have thought you know eight or nine years ago. Yes, she she actually got about eleven million votes out of a total electorate of uh, forty seven million. So I mean it's it's a sizable uh, portion, and of course thirty just under thirty four percent. I do think that these three dimensions are very very important. I mean the first one, the pessimism, the fear of the future, the fear um, of the left behind in the UK, people who supported Brexit, they've turned to uh, either Marine Le Pen or the other populist candidate on the left, uh, Mélenchon, but really it was the fear of the future, the fear for the future for oneself, um, uncertainty and stability, economic instability, but also for, for the community at large was important. The second dimension was community and patriotism indeed, and it was uh, very important. Uh, not quite let's make France great again, um, but in a way withdrawing into the same you know, the same kind of uh, uh, reaction of let's withdraw within our borders and uh, you know, stand with people who are like us uh, was quite important. And this is particularly important considering the, uh, the terrorism attacks that France has suffered in the last uh, couple of years. So it's actually combined with fear of Islam, fear of immigrants and the old issues that the National Front has always campaigned against basically migrants. Uh, but the third dimension, which I think is also very important uh, in this context, is the, the rise of populism in France. Uh, what I mean 
mean by that? It's a, a general distrust of politicians and parties and so on. And this election is particularly striking in the destruction and self-destruction of political parties, whether it's the Socialist Party of Les Re- or Les Républicains, both uh, decided to go because of largely because of the uh, the system they chose to select their candidate. They both went more radicals than they could have been, uh, with Fillon more right-wing than even Sarkozy probably, and Amon being much more right-wing, uh, left-wing, sorry, than uh, than Valls would have been. So that created, you know, um, a huge boulevard in the middle for Macron, but also on both sides for the the two populists. And uh, I think really that's what uh, is transforming uh, French politics at the moment. And it's the same kind of uh, currents that we find in other European countries or in the US. And, and, you know, it's pretty clear that we are seeing these currents uh, across the EU. Um, And one of the interesting themes of um, Matt Paul and Harold's book is that, you know, the, the arguments for the EU in the British referendum campaign failed to resonate emotionally with voters in the way that the arguments for leaving did. One of the interesting things that we've seen in the French presidential campaign is that Macron has wrapped himself in the EU's flag. You know, he, he's uh, come on stage to, to um, ode to joy the EU's national anthem, for example. And it would be great to hear from each of you about whether you think that this kind of more emotional pro-Europeanism has any hope of working. I think that's that's true, and it was indeed very striking. But I think Macron has done two things. First, he was the only positively pro-European candidate. Amon and Fillon, so on the socialist and the uh, the Republican candidates, were also in a way pro-European, but they were much more muted. And all the eight other candidates were extremely critical of the EU. But Macron has uh, taken a, a, an emotional positive role to the EU, but also to, to all sorts of things. And uh, reading or listening to his speeches, it's very, very striking how lyrical he is about how much he loves France, French people and the you know, there's there's a tone that is very different from most of the politicians of that we hear all the time, and I think that he's actually uh, picked up on something on the positive community link that he's he has a lot of work to do to rebuild. Well, I mean, if you look at Britain at the moment, the only national politician in England, at least, who's making the passionate case for Europe and wants to overturn the result of the referendum, essentially, is Tim Farron. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP are sort of slightly different. I mean, making a similar case, but but in terms of England and England and Wales, I mean, Farron is that main uh, figurehead now. But if you look at the national opinion polls as we head into this 2017 election, you know, the Lib Dems are, are flatlining. They've made no real progress among the pro-Remain Conservatives or the pro-Remain Labour voters. So the dynamics after the referendum, if anything, are perhaps not you know not the ideal conditions for a, a, a passionate pro EU campaigner but before the referendum perhaps things could have been different one of our findings is that if people felt positively about the EU that was a really you know big driver of wanting to stay in uh, the EU but of course I didn't see David Cameron or George Osborne or Jeremy Corbyn much during the referendum on a stage actually setting out what the EU had done for Britain or how perhaps they felt voters had benefited from EU membership. Instead, we had a lot of ambivalence from Corbyn, alarmism and economic risk uh, points from Cameron and Osborne, and nobody really setting out that vision, that positive vision about EU membership. And that's where I think ultimately Remain fell uh, at the last hurdle. We asked um, people about what they thought of the campaign, and on the whole, 
Both sides thought it was pretty negative, but they thought the Remain campaign was more negative. And the Leavers had this positive message from their point of view with a potent slogan, take back control. Echoes some of the things that uh, Donald Trump used. The Remainers didn't have anything analogous to that. They worked hard at it. Uh, later you know, discussions among the leaders of this said they really worked hard to try and think of something that would resonate, but couldn't really do that. So cumulatively, years of blame shifting, especially in the context of the Great Recession, when things were bad, it's not us, it's, it's Brussels, and everybody did that. Um, they, they did it in Britain, but they did it across Europe. Years of blame shifting, plus the absence of a really positive message, in the end meant uh, voters thought the Remain campaign lost out on the positive side compared with Leave. I think there's a real message there for the 27 in the sense that the EU is importantly uh, an organisation which is focused on economics um, as well as politics and integration Um, and it's done a pretty poor job of running its own economy in recent years and I think uh, it's pretty clear that the, the 27 have to come up with ways both to show that they have more economic competence but also to translate that into some kind of emotional appeal for the EU once again. Thank you very much to Matt Goodwin, Harold Clark and Florence Fauchet uh, for talking to us. Please do subscribe to our podcast. You'll find it in iTunes. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.